0: Please remain standing for the gospel lesson, which is taken from Matthew chapter 28, verses 1 through 10. Hear the gospel of the Lord. After the Sabbath, at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and, going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning There they will see me. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. Amen. Please be seated. Well, this morning, we're going to look at a traditional, um, but not well-known and rarely used resurrection text, Uh, namely our Old Testament lesson from Isaiah 25 a text rarely preached on on Easter, but a text that I hope to show is profoundly fitting. And we'll make three points. They should be there on your bulletins. Communion, that's in verse 6. Conquest in verses 7 and 8. And then consummation in verse 9. So communion, conquest, consummation. First then, communion. So we're in Isaiah 25, verse 6. The text says, On this mountain, that is on Mount Zion, mountains in the ancient world were considered to be the homes of the gods. And Zion, which is the location of the temple, Zion is the place where Yahweh, the God of Israel, the creator of heaven and earth, has placed his name. The visible presence of his glory abides there inside the temple. And it is this location, then, where our text transpires. This Zion, this Zion, as fulfilled in Christ and the new covenant, in the risen one, is now a heavenly locale. It's where the church is, gathered around Christ in heaven. Hebrews chapter 12 says, You have come to Mount Zion to the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem. The things that the land in the Old Testament contained, Zion, the city of Jerusalem, the temple, the throne of David, these are all now heavenly realities. They are where Jesus, the risen one, the high priest of the temple, the Davidic king on the throne, they are where he is. And he is in heaven. Now, you might think, how can there be a banquet in heaven? Because the text is about a banquet. And that's a good question. We will come back to it. So we're promised that on this mountain, the Lord Almighty, which means the Lord of hosts, that is the Lord with his angelic court, that surrounds his glory in the highest heavens. He will prepare a banquet. The Lord of Hosts is the consummate host. In addition, this name, Lord of Hosts, brings into view God as the commander of the armies, the host of heaven and the host of earth. It pictures the Lord as a victorious warrior, triumphant over all. This one, on Zion, to celebrate his victory Hosts a feast. That's what's happening in the text. And you'll notice it's a universal global feast, a feast for all peoples. The theme is shot through the text all peoples, all nations, all faces, all the earth. And when this Lord holds a feast, he doesn't skimp, right? he's not a miser. He spares no expense. This is a lavish, extravagant feast, overflowing with abundance. A feast, the text says, of rich food. Rich food full of marrow. The best of meats. A banquet, the text says, of well-aged wine. Now, these images, I think, should inform the church's approach to feasting and to hospitality. But it's important to see their metaphors pointing to joyful, embodied, intimate fellowship with God and with his people. So it's primarily primarily your spiritual taste buds which need to be sharpened and developed for this feast. Isaiah makes this clear in chapter 55 when he says, When the Lord summons you to eat and drink, the feast consists of things like this, abundant pardon. Steadfast and sure love. So, the choicest stores of God in this age are His Word and the sacraments, and prayer and praise and fellowship. This is the table that God spreads for the saints. And all of these things, and we must never lose sight of this. These are all ways that the Spirit of God mediates God's own life, God's own presence to us. God himself, then, is our end. The Bible speaks of God and says that he is our portion. That's a food word. God is your portion, your inheritance, our all in all. So that all the banqueting language in Scripture is ultimately about seeing God in his triune glory and splendor face to face in heavenly light. So the banquet, this banquet, is hosted by the Lord of hosts for all the peoples. But why? Why? Why is the Lord of hosts hosting some sort of international banquet? Why are the nations feasting? What victory has been wrought? That brings us to the second point, which is the conquest. And here, particularly, I think we can see why this is a magnificent Easter text. On this mountain, the text says, he will destroy or he will swallow up the shroud or the covering, the text says, which is enfolding all peoples. It's depicted as a sheet or a veil spread out over all the nations. And this veil, this sheet, this universal shroud, is death itself. He will swallow up, the text says, death forever. So there's a kind of realism in the text. It is necessary. It is necessary to see death as a kind of shroud enveloping the nations that must be swallowed up, as the prelude to the untainted joy of the feast. It is necessary, lest we stain the Christian hope with shallow sentimentality. The text is clear. The text is clear that death is this pervasive, ever-present reality, and it hangs over and haunts all peoples. It's a pall, a shadow, a veil. It blocks, it shunts off light and genuine human joy. And we are magnificent at averting our eyes from it, or keeping busy, or pretending that we are permanent features of the landscape. And until death can be seen and squarely faced for the horror, right, for the vile and loathsome and sickening enemy that it is, right, for the enemy that Christ will conquer, the, until that can happen, resurrection joy can never really ring out in fullness. The Lord of hosts here is the one who conquers, finally conquers, definitively conquers, shatters, indeed swallows up, gulps down death. This is the unspeakable Easter glory. Yet you should notice something. The language is clearly speaking of the future resurrection of the dead the future liberation of the whole groaning creation. It's speaking of the full harvest of which Easter, the resurrection of Jesus, is but the first fruits. Listen listen to how Paul uses our text from Isaiah in 1 Corinthians 15. We heard it in the New Testament lesson. Speaking of our, not Jesus's, but our bodily resurrection, Paul says this, When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then, notice the when, then. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. That is a citation of our text. That is Paul citing Isaiah 25. And he is speaking of the future, general resurrection from the dead, then death, the last enemy, is swallowed up forever. And then, then we sing the taunt. Then we sing the taunt. Wesley has the taunt being sung at the resurrection of Christ in hymn number 277 that we sung this morning. Paul has the taunting of death at the end of the age, at the general resurrection. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, then the saying in Isaiah comes true, then we sing the taunt, where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? Then what we have received now by faith in the risen Jesus has become sight. Then it's permanent, global, universal fact. Death is swallowed up. The curse is gone. No disease, no viruses, no dying, no death, swallowed up, gulped down forever. And because it is swallowed up, we can swallow up the banquet that God sets before us in this scene. This is the full flower of the Easter promise in a mere four verses in Isaiah 25. And this conquest here in the text, it comes with our Lord's most tender, consolations to his people. The text says here, the Lord God will wipe all tears from all faces. Wipe away the tears from all faces. It's a very touching, tender image. It's used by John, again, of the end of the age, in Revelation 21, of the redeemed in glory where God personally moves, if you will, from person to person, from face to face, and dries all tears, every last tear from every face of his suffering people. I have always loved this image in Isaiah and in Revelation because in it, we have no rationalizing of evil. There's no trying to fit evil into some grand plan or pattern. We don't have God explaining to us death or injustice. He just obliterates them. He swallows them up. He wipes the tears of history away, and he makes all things new. All things new. And so at this point, we see this at the end of verse 8 in our text, the reproach of his people, their shame is taken away from the earth, the text says. It is having done this, having swallowed up death and the veil, that the Lord of hosts, victorious over death, hosts a banquet. So the banquet, the feast, is coincident with the destruction of death. He swallows up death so that on Zion all nations can swallow up the best of meats and the finest of wines. That's the conquest that's in view in Isaiah 25, and it means, and we can see this clearly now, it means that the banquet in view is none other than the coming wedding supper of the Lamb. So finally, the third point here is the consummation. Verse 9, In that day they will say, What day? Well, the day of death's final, complete destruction. The day of the Lord of hosts' cosmic victory being fully unveiled. The day of the everlasting banquet of all nations on the Zion of God. The day when every tear is dried from every face. On that day, on that day, the redeemed will say, surely this is our God. This day is the day of God, the day of his full splendor, his revelation, the day of face-to-face communion in perfected, covenanted glory. Surely this is our God. The text says we trusted, literally we waited for him and he saved us. Yes, yes, we are saved now but we are saved in hope, Paul says. We have a down payment now. We have the foretaste now. The best, the bulk, and the brightest of your salvation lies ahead. We are saved in groaning and in longing. We walk by faith and not by sight. We see through the glass darkly. We wage an anguished war against sin. All of that is past here in this text from Isaiah. All of that is past. Here, salvation is a wholly accomplished past tense reality. Here, He has finally and fully, forever, finished the good work He has started. He has completely saved us. It is this, it is this that the church is waiting for. And the only reason we hunger and thirst to return back to public worship is because public worship on the day of resurrection, on the day of Sabbath glory, on the day of the Lord, points us to this. Salvation in this age is permanently, deep down in its DNA, in a posture, in a mood, or in a state of waiting. You have turned from idols, Paul says, to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven who delivers us from the wrath which is to come. Our citizenship, the apostle says, is in heaven from which we eagerly wait a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies into conformity with his glorious body. It is basic to Christian conversion, to turning to God, to be waiting, watching, hoping, praying, yearning for this day. There are about 318 references to it in the New Testament. We enjoy the benefits we have now. We exult with joy. We give thanks. But we don't confuse the down payment with the inheritance. What we have now is the seed. This text is the full fruit, the full flowering of Easter hope. Right here, when our text ends with, let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation, that is the praise of the consummation. That is the praise of those whose warfare is over. That is the praise of those who do not live in the shadow lands under the veil of death. It is the praise of people who've entered into the everlasting banquet hall of God. This is the praise of a people who see and who declare, Surely, this is our God. We waited on him. He has saved us. let me make three points in closing. I'm going to make one point for each of the, the points in the sermon. So first, communion. Communion. So Zion, where this banquet occurs, in the Old Testament, it's in the land. In the New Testament, it's a heavenly reality. It's where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. It's where the heavenly tabernacle and temple is. But we know, we know from the book of Revelation, that at the end of the age, Zion, the Jerusalem above, descends. She descends from heaven, and John sees a new heavens and a new earth. Zion is the centerpiece of the new creation. She comes from above, from the future, from the age to come, from heaven to earth, and it is then that this banquet of all nations and all peoples this Feast on Zion will commence. Of course, we partake of the feast now by faith in the Lord's Supper, in communion with God, and in fellowship with one another. We might ask ourselves this, why, why, how is this so? How can we partake of this now? Not because it's already here in fullness. It is not. but rather because you are already there by faith. In fact, you have come to this Zion, the book of Hebrews says. It has not descended to you. You have been lifted up and seated with Christ in the heavenly places. And there, lift up your hearts, Sursum quarter, there we commune with him. But the Zion to which you have come, the Jerusalem which is from above, Will descend when Jesus descends. It will move from heaven to earth, and when it does, it will heavenize the whole creation. Her descent will transfigure the cosmos, usher in the fullness of glory, and the feast will no longer be by word or by sacraments or by faith. Those things, splendid as they are, they are not the tools of your destiny. Word, sacrament, prayer. They are the tools of your pilgrimage. Manna stops when Israel enters the land. We have the foretaste now by faith. Easter teaches us to yearn for the full banquet by sight. Christ's resurrection is a pledge of this. So second, conquest. This text in Isaiah is wonderful for a lot of reasons, but it helps us to see that Easter is a cosmic event. Right, The conquest of death in Jesus' resurrection guarantees that the veil or the shroud or the sheet covering the nations will be lifted. We are raised with Christ now, yet we still die. Our mortal bodies, Paul says, are dead because of sin. Our inner man is renewed, he says. Our outer man decays. Christ is raised, and we are raised with him, but the veil still shrouds the nations. We are awaiting, Paul says, the redemption of our bodies. Plagues are a vivid reminder that we are awaiting the liberation, the full deliverance, and the redemption of our bodies. So here, we can see that Jesus' resurrection, the Easter event, is a pledge. It is the very guarantee of this magnificent panoramic scene in Isaiah. Indeed, his resurrection sets the scene in motion. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying comes true, Death is swallowed up in victory. Then we sing the taunt Where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where, O oh, death, is your sting? Easter, Christ's resurrection must, it must make us yearn for the resurrection of all, for the final destruction of death. Otherwise, we have failed to grasp its significance. Because of his resurrection, the final harvest at the end of the age is get this now, already underway. How can we not long for it? We are already partaking of it. Finally then, consummation. For all the nations, all the redeemed, and for all creation, for every suffering, tear-stained face, the fullness of Easter, though guaranteed, is still future. This is such an important point to speak to the world properly, right? In the midst of anguish and suffering and death, Jesus is risen, and you can taste that reality now by faith. But the fullness of Easter, though guaranteed, is still future. So, yes, we commune with God now, but we commune as awaiting people stretched out toward that day. Easter means not merely triumph and exaltation now. Though it does gloriously mean that. This text shows it means full, future, cosmic triumph. So to yearn for, to love, to aspire after the risen Christ is to seek this day. This day when we will say, surely this is our God, We waited for him, and he has saved us. The day when he appears, and we shall be made like him, for we shall see him as he is. For when Christ, who is your life, appears, you also will appear with him in glory. And then you will say, with all the saints, with all of God's people of all the nations, in heightened exalted, immortal, imperishable, incorruptible, glorious fullness. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. Amen.